This week on the show, we have Dragonfly BSD release 5.2.1 available, BPF kernel exploit write-ups, uh, remote debugging the running OpenBSD kernel, which should be interesting to some users. Uh, we have an interview with Patrick Mooney. The FreeBSD build bot setup in a jail is what we also explained to you. Uh, dumping your USB traffic and five years of gaming on FreeBSD. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 248, Show Me the Mooney, recorded for the 30th of May, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we have a great episode prepared for you this week, starting off with the headlines, as every week, with uh, the new Dragonfly release. There is uh, 5.2 out with uh, an interesting part, because Hammer 2 is apparently stable now. Uh, well, in particular, that the installer supports installing that as the base file system. Ah, so they trust it enough to uh, put the yeah the system on it. So this is actually uh, a point release. This is um, 5.2.1. Yep, uh, point release that follows the 5.2.0 from April. Uh, the, the big ticket items they have are their uh, Spectre and Meltdown mitigation support. Uh, this is uh, and automatically enabled on all Intel CPUs, and the Spectre, uh, Spectre mitigation must be enabled manually uh, by a CCTL if you desire, using the CCTL uh, mockdep, is in machine-dependent, uh, Spectre underscore mitigation and Meltdown underscore mitigation. And then Hammer 2 has now received a very large amount of bug fixes and performance improvements, and uh, they say we can now recommend Hammer 2 as the default root file system in non-clustered mode. Uh, and cluster support is not yet available. Uh, there were also some improvements to IPFW3, the uh, their fork of the FreeBSD firewall. Um, they implemented a state-based redirect. Uh, um, so instead of using uh, libalias to rewrite the packets, they can actually just uh, do the redirects as uh, dynamic state rules. And uh, they also now made it support all different types of ICMP packets uh, up to the 40 different types instead of just the old common types that you might encounter. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they have some improvements on their graphics stack. The DRM i915 kernel driver has been updated to support Intel coffee-like GPUs. Uh, that'll be, I guess that's the like a Lenovo X280, I think, is what that is, uh, and added 24-bit pixel format support uh, to the EFI frame buffer code so you can get all of the colors and mm. uh, significantly improved the FBIO support uh, for the SCFB XORG driver so that if you're not using a graphics driver at all, uh, this allows the EFI frame buffer to be used by X in situations where you can't get the GPU to work. Oh, okay, that's a fallback. They also partly implemented the FBIO blank uh, IOCTL uh, so that you can have the driver turn your monitor off to save power. Also good. Yeah, so um, it seems small, but um, again, this is mostly mitigating Mac Spectre and Meltdown. And um, if you want to learn all the details 
for the changes since Dragonfly 5.0. There's a whole longer list way down at the bottom. Um, but you can grab the latest checksums to um, compare whether you downloaded the proper ISO or there's nothing missing. And then they provide instructions how to update your system using the, um, yeah, well, just get and make build world the usual cycle. Okay, that's uh, the Dragonfly news that we have. Uh, again, we get seldom news from Dragonfly itself uh, outside of the the new releases. So if you have something written about uh, or found something about Dragonfly, we want to know about it and we can cover it in a future episode. But next uh, up So this is, is uh, on a note uh, on a GitHub page. This is an exploit for the PlayStation 4, uh, 4.55, using BPF. So they say, note, while this bug is primarily interesting uh, for exploitation on the PlayStation 4, the bug could also potentially be exploited on unpatched uh, versions of FreeBSD if the attacker happens to have read-write permission to the slash dev slash BPF device, which is normally root only by default, I think. Or if you uh, want to escalate from root user to kernel code execution uh, using that device. Huh, okay. Oh, yeah, there's uh, the... And such, they've published it under the FreeBSD folder instead of the PlayStation 4 folder uh, of exploits. Okay. Uh, so, they say, uh, welcome to the kernel portion of the PlayStation 4 4.55 firmware full exploit chain write-up. <laughs> Uh, this bug was found uh, by a user named Kurti and is fairly unique in the way it is exploited. So I wanted to go uh, do a detailed write-up on how it works. The full source for the exploit can be found uh, with the link there. Uh, and I previously covered the WebKit exploit implementation for the userland access, uh, which is written up over here. Uh, so they ask, was this uh, a FreeBSD bug or a Sony bug? And hmm. why not both? <laughs> <laughs> See, interestingly, this bug is actually a FreeBSD bug and was not, at least directly, introduced by Sony Code. While this is a FreeBSD bug, however, it's not very useful uh, for most systems because the BPF device is owned by root and has the permissions 0600, meaning that you have to already be root before you can touch the device. Um, though it can be made, uh, or it can be used for escalating from root permissions into the kernel mode code execution. However, let's just take a look at the make dev call inside the uh, PS4 kernel for the BPF, which they took from a, a PlayStation 4 4.05 kernel dump. Mm -hmm. And they say, uh, we see that UID 0, or the, the UID of the root user, uh, getting moved into the register for the third argument, which is the owner argument. However, the permissions bits are being set to um, in hex 1b6, which is the octal for 0666, meaning uh, anybody can read and write to the device. Uh, so that means any user can open BPF and have write permission to it. Uh, I'm not sure why this is the case. Uh, the person who found or wrote the exploit speculates that perhaps the BPF is used for um, giving games access to the network card to uh, to do gaming across the land and so on. Mm. Uh, in any case, this was a poor design decision because BPF is, you know, uh, usually considered quite privileged because it's a its own uh, virtual machine language running in the kernel. 
It can and, do a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah, it should not be accessible to a process that's completely untrusted, like, say, WebKit, your web browser. Uh, <laughs> on most platforms, the permissions are locked down uh, to only the root user. Uh, so this one takes uh, the form of a race condition. Uh, so they do a little bit of background of what is a race condition. Uh, this class of bugs is abused in an exploit known as a race condition. Before we go into the specifics of the bug, it's important for the reader to understand what race conditions are and how they can be an issue, especially in something like the kernel. Often uh, in complex software, such as the kernel, resources can be shared or available to everybody. Uh, this means other threads can potentially execute code that will access some resource that could be accessed by another thread at the same time. Uh, that happen or what happens if one thread accesses this resource while another thread uh, does it without having exclusive access, then a race condition can occur. Race conditions are defined as possible scenarios where events happen in a sequence different than the developer intended, uh, which means an unintended behavior. You know, kind of think of you're, you're reaching for the last cookie and suddenly it disappears because somebody else took it. Hmm. Yep. It was or faster. Rather, you already picked up the cookie and you're about to put it in your mouth and it disappears because somebody else did. <laughs> you're like, where's my cookie? Yeah. yeah, that's a good explanation. You know, in a single threaded program, it's not uh, an issue because execution is linear. In more complex programs where code can be running in parallel, however, this becomes a real issue. To prevent these problems, atomic instructions and locking mechanisms are introduced. When one thread wants to access the critical resource, it attempts to acquire a lock. If another thread is already using the resource, then generally the thread that wants it will have to wait to acquire the lock uh, until the other thread is done. Each thread must release the lock to the resource after it's done, otherwise Everybody will sit there waiting to get access and will never get access. Hmm. Sorry. Fixed. There we go. Sorry. Um, while locking mechanisms such as mutexes have been introduced, developers sometimes struggle to use them properly. For example, if a piece of shared data gets validated and processed, but when the processing of the data is uh, locked, then the validation is not etc. There's a window between when you check it and uh, to see if it's valid before you start working on it, and when you take the lock uh, to actually work on it, and in that time, it could have become bad. <laughs> yep. uh, so, yeah. Uh, parallel programming can be difficult, especially uh, as a developer, so you also want to factor in that you don't put too much code in between locks and unlocking, uh, because you know everybody else has to wait while you're doing that. Yeah, that's the problem with locks, that they slow yeah. down that certain things. But they're important, so then nonetheless. It, uh, the article goes on to explain what packet filters are and why BPF is a thing. And then it talks a bit about of the out-of-bounds write primitive uh, that they use in BPF here to actually replace uh, other data that you're not supposed to be able to touch. So now they show how they actually exploit the race condition um, if we look at where the instructions are copied into the kernel, we'll see that it runs uh, BPF validate, uh, and it happens. Uh, it will run immediately, meaning at this point we cannot specify uh, a value that allows an out-of-bound access. But because they don't have a lock on it, then um, you can 
have it validated, then replace it with the bad one, and then it'll run it because it passed the validation. Um, and it might take many tries before you can actually get the timing just right, and it might not be 100%, but you can just sit there, keep trying, and it'll reject it when you're not fast enough, uh, and you, the exploit will run when it is. Yeah, and that makes it possible to... Is that the exploit that actually made it possible to install other operating systems on the PlayStation 4? Um, the, this or is just... a newer one, but oh. they, they've used many different exploits to do that. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what the PlayStation 5 is going to run, but uh, we have to wait a couple of uh, years, I guess, to see that. Yeah, and there's uh, some pictures and more stuff talking about how... Um, all of this works and showing you how the exploit works. Yeah, but it's yeah. a bit too long for us to do it all. The, uh, there's assembly yeah. and, and uh, C code and yeah, all the details for people who want to dig into it. Yeah, and they actually show how uh, Sony tried to patch it and how it didn't work and so on. Mm. So they say, uh, in conclusion, this is a pretty cool bug to exploit and write up. While the bug is not incredibly helpful to... Uh, on most other systems, uh, as it cannot be exploited by an unprivileged user, it is still a valid method of going from root uh, into the kernel. Uh, I thought this would be a cool bug to write up, plus I love writing these type of things anyway, as the attack strategy is fairly unique, using a race condition to trigger an out-of-bound write to the stack. Um, it's also a fairly trivial exploit to implement, and the strategy of overwriting the return pointer on the stack is an easy method of learning security uh, researchers and how to do it. Uh, it also highlights how, while an attack strategy might be old, perhaps this one being the oldest that there is, this can still be applied to modern exploits with a little variation. Yep, it's not just limited to that one, or to that system. Yep. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash bsdnow and check out their ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. Yes, because you might be in need for a new server that does something for you, like uh, storage or runs the database or some kind of web application, and you're not sure whether you need more memory or more CPUs to make that run just smoothly. So that's what you have to ask IX Systems, because they know um, what kind of uh, profile, let's say, your application might have, and they can tell you which components work best in this case for that specific uh, application or use case. Uh, from the biggest uh, storage servers like the TrueNAS all-flash servers to the relatively small FreeNAS Mini for your uh, home or desktop yeah, you use. You need something this big for home? Sure. <laughs> this big for home? Sure. This big for home? They can scale up, uh, yeah. <laughs> now you're acting like me. Uh, or, you know, then you get Do into work. Do you rather need uh, a short-depth 1U just to get something done? Or if you need, you know, uh, a whole rack full of gear, whatever it is, uh, they have the right stuff for you. Yeah, and it's custom-built, and they will test it before they ship it out because chances are that on arrival, that one disk is dying and you can't start. That's why they do the uh, testing before that. They do the burn-in test to make sure that the disks are not dying in the first hour yeah, or two. Um, because every machine is custom-built, you always get exactly what you need. And because they put the time into 
uh, validating the system before they send it to you. It means you don't have to mess with uh, failed disks or RAM that wasn't quite right or whatever because they burn them in for three days before they ship it to you. And that means that all the little bugs are going to be worked out before it goes out the door. Uh, and that adds up a lot. And you can you can tell the, the, the level of care they take when you get the machine and the drives are shipped in a separate box that is got a level of padding you just were not prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so like, Yeah. Uh, that does two things for you. A, the server's a lot lighter when you don't have the disks in it. Uh, so, you know, putting it in the rack is much easier that way. And B, yeah, the, disk, the, the hot swap trays were not meant for traveling the hard drive in it, right? Like, if you just fill the machine with hard drives and ship it, those hard drives are probably not going to have a very fun ride. Whereas yeah. in the special around. IX packing that the drives come in, uh, it's much nicer. And they've taken the effort of putting all the screws in and stuff for you already. So you just unwrap them and stick them in and you're good to go. Uh, I cannot express how happy I was when I found out I didn't have to sit there and put 144 little screws in the box of hard drives uh, before I yeah. started using them. A lot of fiddling and, uh, yeah, oh, one fell down and I can't find it anymore and, yeah, things like that. Um, <laughs> that's what makes you appreciate the, the extra uh, service they put on that for their customers. Yeah. And if you head over to their blog, uh, Michael Dexter has an extra post up there recently uh, trying to help you better understand what's going on with ZFS performance and talking about using tools like Top and Gtrace and flame graphs to understand what's going on, uh, but also uh, taking a book or a page from uh, Benedict Gregg and looking at the uh, time scales of system latencies. You know, if you consider that one CPU cycle is say one second, that means every time you want to get some data from memory, RAM, that's six minutes. If your scale is that one CPU cycle is one second, uh, so when you think about it, your Arc, the, the primary cache of ZFS in your RAM, means it takes six minutes to go get some data from there. That's uh, a whereas long time. if it's in your L2 arc because it's on an SSD, then that's somewhere between two and six days, depending on the amount of money you spent on your SSD. Uh, and, yep. you know, again, going back to IX helping you pick the right kind of SSD. Uh, you know, your write cache wants one kind, your read cache wants another kind, and if you just have SSDs for uh, the pool itself, then that's a third kind. But if you have to go to your spinning disks, that can be anywhere from 1 to 12 months. Yep. They work you know, in milliseconds. If you have and, those power-saving yep. drives in your NAS, then they can take longer. Uh, and, you know, it depends on how fragmented they are and all kinds of things because you're physically moving an actuator to a spot on the disk and reading some data. And then if your data split up across a bunch of different spots, then you got to move the head back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, you can have 5,000 RPM, 7,000, 10,000, or 12,000 RPM drives. It's, yeah, still not so fast as compared to the other uh, layers above that. So, yeah, but sometimes you have to go down there because they have much more capacity and um, it's good to know about these different access uh, times. Yep. But and, of course, IX more, systems will uh, optimize for the performance yep. that you don't have to wait that long uh, when they build you a system for your purpose. 
Mm-hmm. So, moving on to our next story. Yep, remote we have remote debugging, debugging the running, running OpenBSD open kernel. Sorry, I said it uh, again. <laughs> yeah, so for the people who always wanted to know how do I remotely debug this OpenBSD system over there, this is the article for you. So first they explain the problem. Uh, it's basically a few months ago I tried porting the FreeBSD KDB along with its GDB stop implementations to OpenBSD as a practice of learning the internals of a BSD operating system. The DDB code in both FreeBSD and OpenBSD looks pretty much the same and the GDB remote serial protocol looks very minimal. But sadly, I got very busy and the work is stalled, but I'm planning on resuming the attempt as soon as I get the chance. Uh, but there is an alternative way to debugging the OpenBSD kernel via QEMU. What I did below is basically the same with a few minor changes, which I hope to describe it as best. So first of all, you install OpenBSD uh, on QEMU, which isn't uh, that difficult. You basically start the QEMU image, create your raw image disk, like 5 gigs, that's totally sufficient. And then you configure your little uh, QEMU system, provided a bit of RAM, and um, tell it where the drive is and where your OpenBSD install disk is located. Then you basically uh, start up and install and then provide a custom kernel because to debug the kernel, we need a version of the kernel with debugging symbols enabled. And for that, we have to recompile it first because the default kernel doesn't have those for performance reasons. Uh, the process is documented at building the system from source. That's also uh, provided here for people who want to uh, uh, look that up. And uh, then we copy the BSD kernel to the guest machine and keep the BSD.GDB uh, on the host to start the remote debugging via GDB. So that's done here. The uh, end config and the disk labeling is done. And once that's done, you mount that thing and do it a VNC config dash U VND zero. So now the actual remote debugging is done with. Um, being able to boot the guest with the new custom kernel. And remember that the dash S argument enables the GDB server on QMU on localhost port 1234 by default. Of course, you can change that if you don't uh, like that port or it's too uh, too common. You maybe have something else listening on that, uh, but it's just a simple setting on the QMU system. And now you can finally attach to the running kernel. You go to uh, GDB obj slash bsd.gdb and then you can happily jump around and uh, create you know um, breakpoints and jump to certain threads and uh, things like that and it's all remotely yeah and I think it's basically generally uh, applicable to other BSDs isn't it yeah. uh, if you're using QMU you can debug anything basically yeah Okay, now speaking of debugging, we have a good amount of debugging in our interview coming up. This week we have Patrick Muni uh, with us here in the interview. He's a software engineer. And uh, if you remember the Ryan Zazeski interview, he recommended us we should have an interview with Patrick. So here we are. Uh, welcome to the show, and uh, we ask everyone who's here for the first time on the show, how did you get first introduced to Unix? Thanks for having me. Um, in terms of my introduction to Unix, um, 
I've, I've been a Linux user for a long time since I was in high school. Um, but if you want to talk about strictly Unix, um, I messed about with FreeBSD some, some when I was in high school, a little bit while I was in college. Um, I didn't ever really use it in a huge amount there. Um, until I got to um, my first job out of college at General Mills, I joined the Unix team there. Um, and that wasn't a FreeBSD shop. It was a full HP UX shop. Um, so I got to use old Big Iron Linux there for a while. Um, that was quite the experience. Um, but to be honest, um, my experiments with FreeBSD prior to that kind of um, prepared me for that. You know, it's it is easy to, if, if you're using only, only Linux, um, get used to all the GNU-isms and, and kind of get comfortable in the way that someone gets comfortable on Windows or, or OS X or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so being ready to find things that weren't on Linux um, on HPUX uh, using, you know, have, having experimented with FreeBSD there helped quite a bit. So... It, it softened the blow of, oh, you know, like, if config doesn't work as I expected, or these tools are totally missing, or it's it's just regular Vi instead of them, things like that. Yeah. It's it's usually uh, coming back in other operating systems or distros. Oh, I've always done it with this one specific command or tool. What's the new command I have to learn now? Oh, yeah, totally. And, and to go from kind of the, to go from, you know, the, the online communities of, open source to the closed proprietary systems of, yeah. of HPOX in that case was, was a surprise there, for sure. And how did you end up getting into Illumos? Um, getting into Illumos was actually when I came here to Joint. Um, it was, you know, I, I had been certainly aware of, of Solaris and, and the work that had been done there. I was, I was pretty disappointed to see when Oracle purchased Sun. Um, I, I was still at General Mills at that point um, and, and had been kind of hoping that, you know, maybe we would look at Solaris as an alternative to HPUX. But, but when Oracle swooped in, that sort of ruined that thing there. Um, yeah, that and many other I, things. Yeah, yes. It, it was, I think, a disappointment for a great many people. Um, but once I'd come to join, you know, I, I started using SmartOS here and, and really came to love the system and, and the choices that were made. And, and I think I, for me, the way that SmartOS is set up kind of is, is a lot easier for me to use. I know back when I was in college, I had some friends who ran kind of an old Solaris system. Um, and I remember them griping about like kind of, you know, you, you had the Sun Studio compiler and IPS packaging, and there was all of this stuff that was kind of really inaccessible to a normal person, or at least someone who's just playing around with this stuff. You're so, yeah. you know, yeah, having access to things like package source and, and joint zones and, and using regular GCC, and it certainly made it a lot easier for someone coming from kind of the general open source community to, to come in and use it. Well, uh, speaking of open source community and so on, how did you actually get started uh, contributing to open source projects? Sure. Um, so while I was at General Mills, um, I, I spent quite a bit of time on the Unix team there. Um, and then sort of during my tenure there, um, it became pretty clear that HPUX on Itanium was not going to be the platform that would carry them forward um, as a business. Um, certainly some of that was 
um, Oracle's announcement that they were going to cease uh, supporting Oracle on Itanium. So when you've got these critical business systems, you need a, a supported platform. Um, so I was part of the effort to move kind of the entire enterprise business systems from HPOX onto Linux was then our choice there, um, which was very nice. I mean, it, it opened up a lot of room to actually start using open source technology in, in a more expansive way than was on HPOX. It, it certainly wasn't totally absent on HPOX, but um, once you move to Linux, it's pretty easy there. So it was nice to, you know, when I was debugging a problem to be able to go, you know, oh, this this utility, this tool, this piece of software isn't acting how I, I think it should. Um, you know, what, what does the source say? You, you know, you, you can stare at a manual all day long. The manual might be wrong. Who knows? Um, but if you go to the source, that's that's how it's working. Um, so I kind of got in the habit of, of doing that sort of thing. I, I contributed, like, small bug fixes here and there to, to things that I encountered or I, I needed a small feature for this thing. Um, it, it, it was still largely an ops role. I, I went to school um, for computer engineering, but my role at General Mills was largely ops. I, I wasn't writing a lot of software. Um, but as we were rolling out this Linux environment, um, one of the things that I wanted to do was get better Active Directory integration uh, with, our, with our enterprise uh, Linux environment. Um, there's some software out there that does this today in terms of like SSSD or these things that will map AD into traditional users. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that any of them were designed with like corporate active directories in mind where you've got a gajillion users and a gajillion groups and it'll go, oh, I'll try and enumerate all the groups this person's in and like logging in will take half an hour. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so I was trying to write some, uh, some bespoke tooling for those things. Um, and I was, I ended up finding a library called LDAP.js for doing LDAP service and client stuff um, in Node.js. Um, and I wanted to do some things with that. And there were some, some kind of deficiencies or some bugs that were preventing me from doing things that I wanted to with Active Directory. So I, I started contributing back to that project. Um, and it turned out that that project had been written by someone here at Joint. Um, and... That's actually how I got my, my job here at Joint was I, I was contributing patches back and they liked the software that I was helping improve. So that's how I landed here. Oh, okay, that's the connection. Yeah, yeah. you touched on it a little bit uh, already. Uh, so what sort of things have you worked on in the past? Sure. So I, I covered you know some of the things that I did um, while I was at General Mills, prior to that, when I was in university, um, I did web development. Back then, it was PHP and MySQL and, and you know, CSS and JavaScript that are nothing that, nothing that resembles what people are doing today. It was, uh, I did support IE 5.5, and it was, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad Special to be hacks. done with all of it. Oh, it, it was disgusting. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's what I did in university. Um, Came to General Mills, uh, was in you know the the HPOX administration, spent some time in network, um, did the the Linux project. Came to Joint. Um, when I initially came here to Joint, I was working on mostly the you know the the LDAP.js stuff. I, I worked some and and with a key value store did kind of upstack stuff. Um, but pretty shortly after I landed there, um, I got the opportunity to start working on LX branded zones. Um, which I think you've talked about when Brian was on, but that was um, 
our technology for running native Linux binaries in a SmartOS zone. Um, so myself and a few other people worked pretty hard on that for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of my focus with some, some other forays into other operating system things. Um, and then most recently, I landed on the, the Beehive porting project. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, what attracted you to, to Illumos so much? You said you really liked the way it was put together. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I can't claim that I, I was too familiar with Illumos or OpenSolaris um, before I came to join it. Um, but it, it's certainly been a process of, of discovering things that I like about it. So, you know, I, I think one of the most simple demonstrations of that is some of the, the P-tools, the process tools, um, and, and kind of just the rigor built around them. So, you know, you, you've got um, tools like, you know, PRs or PNs that'll just print the arguments or the environment to something. But kind of one of my favorite little tools that, like, it, it doesn't seem like much, but I've, I found it hugely useful, um, is PStack, where you just walk up to a process and stay, you know, like, what are the, the stacks of running threads in this process? Um, and it doesn't seem like much, but it's, it's way easier than, you, you know, if, if you've got a process that's, like, wedged and doing something, you don't know what it's doing, you can just, like, walk up to it and ask what it's doing. And because, like, all of the binaries are built with their full symbols, and they're built with frame pointers, so you can easily traverse the stack. It's like this super simple thing to say, hey, like, you know, what system call, what function am I in? Like, I've got this bash script that I don't know what it's doing. And, like, without doing, like, it, even for a system administrator, you can just walk up to a process and say, like, you know, what is this thing doing? And because it's in some function and you've got all the names there, it's, it's just, like, this simple little thing in terms of a, in, of observability that makes all the difference in the world. So, you know, all of this stuff is designed to be observable, designed to be correct. Um, and that, that's something, you, you know, you, you see that same care in the kernel and the same care in, in the way that it's developed. Um, and, and that's something that I've really come to appreciate. Yeah. So um, that... That's a great segue into the next question, actually. How did you get interested in and uh, started with the systems development? It was, it's been kind of an interest of mine for a long time. I, I, I'm interested in, in systems in general. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of folks will go, like, just spend time just cruising Wikipedia. Not, not necessarily just, like, systems, but you're like, oh, like, how to how do boat engines work or like, you know, I, what, what is my municipality doing to like provide sewer service and and clean water service? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's all of these things. I I think to some, some portion of the population are, are fascinating. Um, And the operating system and system software are, are, you know, they're, they're the municipal utilities that we in computing rely upon so to some they're not glamorous you know you're you're not running some fancy ui or anything but but to some of us you know you you can appreciate you can appreciate clean water when it's given to you and and the the effort and the care that goes into making that clean water available all the time um and and troubleshooting when it when it's not there so it's been an interest of mine for a long time um when i was on the unix team at general mills it, it was something where you know i could find a niche in 
people who were interested in this stuff, when, when we had a problem, you know, you, you could go to the manuals or you could try and get more information from the vendor. And, and once we got into Linux, there was certainly a lot more room there for when a, a piece of system software was misbehaving or, or if, a, a, you know, e- even if the kernel was misbehaving, you, you could try and figure it out. You know, I, I am not a Linux kernel developer, but there were times when it was like, oh, we're seeing this weird problem. Mm-hmm. I'm going to at least you know, walk up to the source code and try and figure out what what this thing is is doing. So that it, it was kind of being interested in that stuff that that made it easier to get my job done. Um, and it it was kind of a dream come true when I when I came here to join and was asked, hey, you know, do you, do you want to work work on LX? Do you want to work on this? And um, LX was, I think, kind of for me the perfect opportunity to work on this stuff. So the way that the the system call emulation was kind of initially implemented um, in in SmartOS and Illumos um, was when a, a Linux binary was making a system call. It, you know, it, it syscall into the kernel, and the kernel would see that this was a branded zone, that this was a process that was meant to be running with the, the system call table. Um, and as such, it would actually have a shared library mapped into that kernel's address space. Um, and the kernel would vector out to that shared library to, to execute or to implement the system call that needed to be emulated. The, the point being was you, you could choose some handful of syscalls to be like, oh, like if you want to emulate a read syscall, you could just, from the shared library, call your native libc's read. Um, so it, it made doing complex things pretty easy. Um, so when we were doing the work initially on LX, um, a lot of it was all implemented actually in user space. So mm. I kind of coming into the project, it, it was still in kind of a, a pretty rough shape, but there was a lot of room for me to, you know, to, to make some mistakes um, and not have the kernel at risk because I'm in user space. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a license to be careless, but it, it was certainly a, for me, it was a, a softer on-ramp into, you know, doing operating system development. Um, and as our effort on LX continued, um, we went on and, and we moved more of that into the kernel. And, and now most of it's up in the kernel um, and kind of being part of that and, and getting to learn, you know, what some of the conventions were in Illumos for how do you do this and how do you, you know, um, avoid certain problems. LX was the perfect opportunity um, for, for me to, to kind of come into that space. Mm-hmm. Isn't it also being a developer writing for the sysadmins later who just use the system that you have this mindset of making it easy for them? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, th- there are there's certainly different expectations about like the interface that you would want, right? If mm. you're, you're trying to, you know, rather than serve for a, a general consumer, you've got a, a pretty constrained audience that you're writing for. Yeah. Having been in that audience, you know some of the things that you might want or, or some of the things that, you know, m- maybe you personally aren't interested in having, but you know that, you know, giving people options to do this in one way or the other might, might help them down the road. Mm. Yeah, and, I, you know, it can make... Uh, having your background as a an ops person can make a big difference when you're designing the, the more low-level interfaces in that, in the end, I know I'm going to have this set of information available to me, and I want to use it to get this other information. And you can design an interface 
that makes sense from that perspective versus people that have only ever done like pure CS and, and, and programming uh, often design the interfaces for, you know, what makes sense to them as far as what somebody might need in, in, from the system. Sure. And, and simply just in, in work ethic, I know that like there is having been an ops, you, you, you get the empathy for like, you know, when, when something you've done causes a problem, like you, you know, the kind of pain that you might have inflicted there. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's certainly an incentive to get it right the first time. And and when you don't get it right the first time to, to try and do everything you can to help someone out that is, has been put in a sticky place by something you may have done. So Uh, so what first got you interested in beehive and getting even lower level than the kernel? (laughs) Well, so um, the, I had been aware of Beehive, um, both in the Beehive effort, and then uh, I certainly saw some chatter about XHive, which is OSX's port of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I had seen some chatter there. Um, I wasn't using FreeBSD at that point. I, I had used it as my workstation OS um, for a couple of years a while back, um, but I, I like didn't have a system that I was playing with it on. Um, so for me, it was really... Um, when it became clear that we were going to do uh, port this into Illumos, um, that's when I, I really dove into it. So, you know, that's, that's how I got into it. I know it, it certainly was um, kind of from the outside looking in on Beehive, it was certainly more attractive in terms of, you know, the, you've got on the Linux side, you've got KVM and Kimu. Um, and KVM is, is pretty purpose-driven. Kimu... Um, is you know it, it's this this Swiss Army knife of, Swiss Army knife of emulation and and SmartOS and Illumos have KVM and Kimu in them, um, but they're both very old. Like that the that porting work I think was done like 2011 2012. Um, yeah, it's been so a while. yeah, and and both they've not essentially been updated. There there have been bug fixes and security fixes to the to the KVM and Kimu in Illumos, but they've effectively been forked. For years and years and years, um, and Kimu, I mean, to its credit, is you know, can it, I, it can do full x86 emulation, right? You don't you don't even need to be on a chip that can can has VMX or, or whatever AMD's um, technology is. It, it can do that. It can do ARM. It, it it's an incredible piece of software, um, but it's really it's its focus is on being this huge blossoming emulation platform. Um, which makes it kind of difficult to work on if you want a tightly constrained production virtualization mm. uh, platform. So in that way, the the focus of Beehive was certainly very attractive. It was, you know, we're going to run AMD64 emulation on this platform. We want to run VMs. Um, I, th- I think f- from what I've read, its goals are appear very similar to what OpenBSD is running, where, like, at first, it was just, hey, let's virtualize FreeBSD on FreeBSD, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if we can run some other operating systems, that's great. But, like, tight focus on, on running something in that manner, not being a Swiss Army knife. So from, from an outsider's perspective, that was very enticing. Well, yeah, one of the goals of Beehive was legacy-free, not uh, bringing giant, complicated emulation code along. So no floppy disks. You know? Yeah, there have been, I think, two or three vulnerabilities found in the QMU floppy disk uh, emulation over the years. And it's like, why Why did my 20-core VMs even have a floppy disk? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, so, um, but how much work was it to take the years-old port of Beehive and get it working on modern Ilomos? Well, so we received um, a set of patches from a company, uh, Pluribus, who had ported Beehive to their, I, I think what they have is, is strictly speaking, still in kind of an, op an open Solaris port. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the specifics on that, but from what I've gathered, they're not so much, you know, they, they've been pulling from Illumos or whatever, but their, their fork is, is closer to open Solaris. Um, so we got a set of patches from them, um, kind of both older from an Illumos open Solaris standpoint and very old from a beehive standpoint. Um, I started, I, I think we got those back September of last year. I got involved in October. Um, and the, really the first effort was to get, a, get like a KVM image that we had fired up and, and initialized to just boot on those bits, to get it to compile and, and get it to boot. Um, that went, I mean, it, it, was, it was a challenge, but we, we eventually got it wired up um, and got it booting. Um, there were a lot of kind of shortcomings there. Um, the, the work seemed kind of half completed. So, so Beehive had support for multiple CPUs. Um, but the, the port that we had uh, never had, an, there was no, nothing that would initiate additional threads to run those CPUs. So you could say, hey, create an instance with four CPUs, and they would be there, but they wouldn't be, and they'd never run. So it was just a single CPU machine, which was a little odd. Um, so w once we got once we got that working and, and had it functioning, um, it became pretty clear that it, you know, we, we needed to get it updated uh, pretty desperately. So I guess, yeah, what was the process like to actually get that, that old Beehive port caught up to current FreeBSD? Um, so that was, that was a huge ordeal. Um, at that point, it was mostly um, myself, I was working on it, and then Hans, another another employee uh, joint, were working on it. Um, so we kind of split it up um, into Hans was going to focus on the user space side, and I focused mainly on the things that were in the, the kernel side of things. Um, and he and I both took a different approach to how we were going to update the code that we were going to use. Hans went, and I, I don't know kind of how he inferred where in Beehive's history the port started from, um, I, I didn't spend a lot of time looking there because it, it looked complicated to me, but he found kind of a commit in the FreeBSD history that resembled where Pluribus had forked it from, who knows when. Um, and he started walking forward with the FreeBSD patches, applying those to what we had in our tree um, in terms of the Illumos Beehive. Um, I took a different approach. I, our target was FreeBS, FreeBSD 11.1, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I went and I took the sources for FreeBSD 11.1's Beehive and copied them over the top of what we had <laughs> um, in our Illumos one, which, to its credit, had a bunch of if-defs and, you know, the, the kind of the Illumos-specific stuff was wrapped in, in if-defs, so it was clear where it was, you know, what special cases were needed or were thought to be needed for Illumos. Um, so I copied that diff over and then started sifting through it. And I think it took me a week of full-time work before it even compiled. And I'm, I'm not saying ran, just built without 
Uh-huh. Um, it was it was a hell of a thing. Um, it was a considerable amount of work. Um, kind of one big piece of it was since Pluribus had done the the port, um, the way that Beehive handled guest memory had totally changed. So they started leaning on the FreeBSD VM system, um, and we're calling a bunch of functions there that we just didn't have. Um, so you know, I had to write a shim system to to re-implement EPT and, and all of that. Um, there was kind of a lot of shim work to do to get that up off the ground and running. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of kind of strengthening code, a, a, a fair chunk of code in there was worked in the optimal case, um, but in terms of wanting something that was production ready, uh, we wanted something that would not panic the box in the malicious case. Mm-hmm. Um, so spent a lot of time hardening that up. And in terms of a lot of it was kind of Illumina-specific or, or uh, OpenSolera-specific. Um, so that that took it was a, maybe about a month before we got that back from, you know, booting a single CPU on the old bits to booting a machine on the new bits. Um, and then after that, it was kind of a, a, a pretty long shakeup period in once it was booting and working, applying load to it and, and finding bugs. Yeah, I did a little debugging with Hans and uh, Jorg and some other people at uh, Fosdem in the spring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Winter. <laughs> at the booth. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we were getting a crash in the firmware. Uh, the, the mm. UBFI oh, oh, the UBFI. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's interesting to see FreeBSD has this whole stack of shims to be able to run the Illumos code, like Dtrace and ZFS and so on. And then Illumos is growing this whole shim stack to be able to run FreeBSD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, I mean, the, the VM system shims were kind of the biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it, it hasn't been so bad. A lot of it has just been pretty simple, like, oh, it's called a different name and, and mm-hmm. has slightly different expectations around parameters. So a lot of the compatibility stuff isn't isn't too serious. Right, it's it's pretty thin. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so if I would install Illumos today, how usable is Beehive on it right away? Or right That's what, so the work we've done, um, so the Beehive work has not gone upstream into Illumos. Um, one of the other distros, uh, the OmniOS Community Edition folks have been pulling our Beehive patches into their distribution, as far as I know. Um, on SmartOS, the kind of the biggest issue right now is image availability. Um, so ideally, so we, we ship KVM images that are ready for you to, you know, you, you give it a, a, a VM payload of, oh, I want a VM with this many resources and, and this, these IP addresses on its interface. Um, and it, it will come up and boot and be assigned those, those addresses and, you know, allow you to log in. Um, we don't have a set of images that kind of function in that way that are published yet for Beehive. So in that in that sense, it's you know for, for you know someone to walk in off the street and boot a Beehive VM on on SmartOS, it is not accessible. Um, that said, we're doing a lot of testing internally. Um, the, the, you know, the, there have been some images published, or you can uh, people have the way that we started was you take a KVM image and and get it kind of set up how you want it, and then just swap it over to Beehive. It's just a disk image. 
Um, so for those things, Beehive has been working pretty well. You know, we've been driving hard load on it. Um, it's considerably faster than than KVM. You know, what, one of our focuses has been um, network performance primarily. Um, so like I think what exists in FreeBSD, uh, we have a driver implemented to do VertIO net in the kernel. Um, it's kind of glued into our network stack. Um, so in that regard, the the network performance versus our KVM has been it's been great. There's there's still work to do on it, um, including work just in our na native network stack. Um, but that part has been working great. Um, you know, we've we've driven the CPU count up. Um, I, I think in FreeBSD, the like the define that sets the sizing for VMs in uh, FreeBSD is I think 16, 16. Uh, vCPUs. Um, for some of the testing we were doing, people were wanting more, so we cranked that up to 32, and it, it you know it it worked fine. Um, so we we leaned on it. Our, our producer asked us to ask you about that because on FreeBSD, if you just turn it up to 32, then it runs into some other data structure and messes up the APIC table or something. Uh, didn't or blow up on us. Okay. <laughs> it, it might be that there are, I think there are some differences on how we're allocating allocating some of those structures, but it, it right. didn't blow up at 32. Okay. Because so. I think if you go over 22 on FreeBSD, it uh, runs into one of the other data structures and messes things up. And I, I would like to see the details on that. I'd be curious to see if we just got lucky or, or have avoided it one somehow. of those differently or what. Yeah, there, there are, I, I think there are a handful of things we're allocating differently. That was, I, I um, it's been a goal for a while to change those to be dynamically allocated so that it's not a static defined because I think yes. the reason why it's capped at 16 is that even if you start a bunch of VMs with four CPUs, it allocates the structure for 16. Uh, and, yep. you know, that can be a lot of overhead if you're running a, a bunch of uh, virtual machines. Absolutely. And, and you know, I looking at kind of what, what's been going on upstream, um, it looked like some of the CPU topology work kind of is is alluding to, you know, they I think they had a max in there, so maybe maybe that will be used to, to allocate those structures down the line. I don't know. It would be nice. Yeah, uh, because that was uh, the topology work was interesting because by default, Beehive's like, oh, you want 32 CPUs? I'll emulate a system with 32 sockets with one core each. Um, mm, sure. That's fine until you're running something that has licenses. That's, you know, which mm. is like, I won't boot if there's more than eight sockets. Or <laughs> your Oracle software is like, you must pay me all of the money now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a single 64 care core CPU, one socket. Mm. Yep. Definitely that. Yeah. But it's interesting to see you mentioned that uh, you basically you threw a beehive and all the bees flew out and now you have to uh, make changes in other parts of the kernel like the networking stack. So it all uh, connects to these different parts of the system. Yeah, I mean, uh, the networking stack work is work that we've, we've needed to do. Um, bringing beehive in, you know, when we're trying to squeeze the best performance out of it, it, it was clear to us, you know, that there are some there are improvements that we need to make, and, and it will help everything else in our system. Um, but kind of this this focus on networking performance has has spurred that work into action. Hmm. Uh, so, what area of Beehive are you most interested in improving? Um, that's a good good question. Um, you know, th there are there are pieces that I think are 
perhaps specific to Illumos, and then there are pieces that um, I, 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 yeah, I, I think would be nice for everyone. Um, I can I I have a pretty strongly held position about something that I don't want to see improved about Beehive. Um, the lack of nested BERT support, uh, while it's I think a pain for some people who want to test BERT in a BERT, sure. um, I consider that a huge feature of Beehive in terms of an easy to easy to work in code base. Um, having poked around at what Linux is doing in KVM and all of the things they had to add for nested vert. Um, I really hope that that the decision is to not do that for Beehive. Even if someone walks up with a patch that says, hey, I implemented nested vert and I tested it all and here it is, um, I think that will make it harder for all of us if we do that. Yeah, I definitely um, Beehive made the right decision with requiring hardware that does EPT so it didn't have to emulate it um, and uh, yes. choosing not to do some of those things just because, you know, this is software we need to maintain with not a VMware-sized team, and so we don't want to have uh, these features that are just too hard to understand and just too many fingers all over the code base. Yes, yeah, and, and it, it reaches into everything, and, and suddenly it's a mess. Um, as, as for things I'd like to see in Beehive, you know, you, you touched on dynamic CPUs. Um, I think it'd be nice... That there are, there are you know parameters that control like virtual interrupt delivery and, and kind of system level features that are turned off and on. That you know it, it might be nice to be able to toggle those on a per VM basis for testing. Um, kind of better just parameterization in general about you know setting things like that. Um, you think about what else? The storage maybe. I yeah so I. I have garbage disks in my test machine, so like disk throughput is not something I've tested. Like, um, I, I I just can't, you know I've got like surplus disks in a machine that yeah. it's right. like I, oh um, I could. I know a feature people have wanted for a long time is uh, support for other disk image formats rather than just raw disk, like uh, QCow and VMDK and so on. Yeah, yeah, so that would be that would be interesting. Um, yeah, it, I I would assume that that would just be kind of more kernel kernel driven drivers for those for those PCI devices, right? That that the implications for core Beehive itself wouldn't be too serious. You know, you just well, I, bolt I on. Yeah, the the start of the project originally was a library and user space that just sat between Beehive and the disk image and and you know supported QCow or whatever. Sure. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, a bunch of it is still done in user space today, right? Mm-hmm. For for all of the things that aren't worth doing in in the kernel. Yeah, hmm. yeah that that would be. Um, I I know there's been some talk of migration, um, like live migration or or things like that. Um, there's some researchers at a university in Romania that are working on that. I've seen a demo of it working once. <laughs> yeah, I I you know it. it it is certainly interesting and, and I think would be useful and valuable and, and not so complex that it would be uh, unlike nested vert. I, I think that, I think that that live migration could be implemented in the same way. Um, but it would be nice to, to have influence on that design to make it easy for, you know, like I, we would love to have live migration in, in smart OS and Lumos and, in, in, you know, our upstack stuff in Triton. It would be nice if it was implemented in a way that 
you know, both a home user that's doing whatever they want and us could, you know, enough hooks in it so, so that you could do it for a lot of use cases. Right, because I think the way it's implemented now, it's probably a little specific to the FreeBSD VM stack uh, yes. to, to do the memory tracking and so on. Mm-hmm. Oh. Memory tracking and just like, how do you serialize? I mean, you've got to move memory, but you've also got all this device state that you need to serialize mm-hmm. and, and import into the other side. So, yeah. Yeah, and even just when I know they're looking at ways to be able to you know migrate to not an identical machine, uh, but then eventually you get to the question is like, I want to be able to migrate from a FreeBSD beehive to an Lumos beehive. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't see any reason why. Well, if you generalize things like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the TSC and parameters like that have the appropriate scaling, I don't see why it wouldn't be possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is actually a good uh, uh, part for the next question. Um, do you think that the FreeBSD and Lumos version of beehive will stay in sync with each other over time? Um, I certainly hope so. Uh, it's, I think, in all of our best interests that that be the case. Um, I know that, so, the initial port work that we did, we synced up to FreeBSD 11.1. Um, since then, um, we've done the, the second sync that we did, um, I put back just a couple days ago. So, mm-hmm. we've been pulling in changes that have been going on um, in Upstream Beehive, right? Just bug fixes, features, you know, what, if someone wants to use the topology stuff, great. Um, the, you know, there's been work that we've done, either bug fixes or, you know, if if we get involved in, in features that we want that, that would be useful to the community. Um, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to see those go upstream. Um, you know, everything that we keep in our branch in a diff is just a lot more work that we need to do whenever we sync from upstream. So Mm -hmm. everything that makes sense, um, for upstream beehive, I would love to see go upstream in a timely manner. Yeah, this is the, the giving and taking that we want to see in open source and which what attracts us to open source in the first place. Yeah, there, there's no reason to do that work twice, right? The, yeah. It can benefit us all. Is there anything else you want to touch on on Beehive? Um, I don't think so. I, I think we've hit, you know, I'm, I think we've hit it all. Yep. Uh, so changing gears a little bit, uh, what do you do for fun? Uh, for fun, um, I do a lot of work. Uh, but uh, other than that, now um, now that it's summer, um, I've been enjoying getting out on the bicycle again. Um, I, I'm not in the Bay Area. I'm in uh, Minneapolis. So we do have four seasons here, and I'm not one of those people who goes out on their bicycle in the middle of winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that That isn't for me. So I stay cooped up. But now, now that it's warm again and, and it's uh, it almost seems like we went straight from winter straight into summer, um, but now that it's nice again, it's it's nice to be out on a bicycle. So. Yeah. That's uh, a nice activity. Um, is there anything else you want to mention before we let you go? Um, not that I can think of. I appreciate your time chatting here. Yes, we appreciate your time taking uh, 40 yeah. minutes out of your day to, to talk with us. Great. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you.
So we hope you liked this interview. Uh, we have some news now, news roundup that might be interesting to you uh, because people have asked us uh, sometimes here and there how do we set up a build bot in FreeBSD, and that's what we have here: setting up a, a BSD jail with a build bot in it. Uh, so the author says, in this article, I would like to present a tutorial on setting up a build bot, a continuous integration or CI software, kind of like Jenkins or Drone or whatever. Uh, making use of FreeBSD's containerization mechanism, Jails, uh, we will cover the terminology, rationale uh, for both uh, build bot and Jails together, and all the steps to install it. At the end, we will have a working build bot instance using uh, its simple build configuration, ready to play around with your own CI plans or even CD uh, if you want to, which is continuous delivery where you uh, validate the, the output, basically. Yeah. Um, some hints for production-grade installations are given, but the tutorial steps are meant for a test environment, you know, like in a virtual machine or whatever. Uh, build boss configuration and detailed concepts are not really in scope here. So uh, a table of contents kind of give a rundown of what's available in the article. Uh, first, you'll choose your host operating system and version for BuildBot, creating a FreeBSD playground, uh, a bit of an introduction to what jails are, an overview of how BuildBot works, set up the jail, install the BuildBot master, run it, install a BuildBot worker, or more than one, and run those, setting up a web server uh, so that you can access the BuildBot UI, run your first build, and then some tips for transitioning from test to production. Uh, so they say, we chose uh, FreeBSD 11.1 release uh, as our platform for BuildBot. Uh, there's no particular reason. And as a matter of fact, BuildBot is a Python-based server, so it's very cross-platform, anywhere where you can run Python. Mm. Uh, it'll make a difference uh, for what you do with BuildBot. However, for instance, Pudrere is the de facto standard for building packages from source on FreeBSD. Uh, Builds run in jails, which may be any FreeBSD-based version older or equal to the, the host. Uh, and they talk a bit about how that works. Um, but in general, you can just uh, install BuildBot and you're good to go. So in order to create their FreeBSD playground, uh, they say Vagrant is a popular tool to quickly set up virtual machines uh, from build images. And they're using it here for simplicity. Uh, any form of test environment or virtual machine would suffice. Um, if you choose to follow along using Vagrant, uh, just install it and ensure you have a compatible hypervisor. And so they just did Vagrant init uh, FreeBSD 11, and then they had uh, Vagrant up, Vagrant SSH, and they're in a working FreeBSD machine. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can so see... They have a breakdown of what jails are, but uh, you can look at that yourself if you uh, still need help with that. Uh, and then an overview of BuildBot. Basically, there's a master uh, component which parses all build configuration and other settings, like setting notification emails, changing sources like Git repositories, and so on, and then distributes those builds to actual workers. And then BuildBot Worker is a dumb component which can be, uh, or can have a connection details, uh, and it goes and does the work, basically. So you can Use BuildBot to orchestrate many machines doing uh, your CI stuff. Or you could set up each one to run single-threaded and use it to schedule, you know, if you have 16 cores, you can run a separate jail for each one and have the master coordinate them and keep them all busy, whether <laughs> uh, working on different things or whatever. So they show setting up uh, jails. They say they're cheap and uh, easy 
and Semantic. So they install EasyJail and just EasyJail create a couple of uh, jails and they're good to go. And then they show using a PF to set up NAT so that the jails will have access to the internet. Oh yeah, important uh, if you want yep. to fetch and, some sources. Uh, forwarding port 80 into the um, the BuildBot master jail so that they can do the um, the web interface. Yep, there's also a screenshot there. Yep. Um, so then they just package install um, pi36-buildbot and the uh, pi36-buildbot www and that will give them buildbot and the website stuff. Uh, then they just run uh, or make a buildbot master user and I create the directories uh, and run buildbot create master on the directory and it'll be good to go. Yeah. It's very detailed, so you should not have difficulties following along. Uh, a great article. And, um, well, if you want to build this on the Internet, you should uh, try this out on our second sponsor for this week, DigitalOcean, because they can provide you with uh, droplets, that's uh, little virtual machines or maybe not so little <laughs> virtual machines in the cloud, and they have FreeBSD support, so you can uh, start uh, FreeBSD jails or um, just your regular virtual machine in that cloud and run pre-built applications like a LAMP stack or a MongoDB or MySQL that you might want to run. And from there, it's pretty simple to start, and those droplets are instantly created within seconds. And that's just great to, to get something started pretty quickly, um, let something calculate something or uh, compute something and then uh, delete it again because you finished and got the results from that. Yeah, uh, so whether you need uh, some memory, some CPUs or just some transfer and storage they have all for you. Uh, I really like their flexible droplets where you can choose how much memory and CPU you want uh, and you get three terabytes of transfer is probably more than you need mm. uh, and $15 a month makes you can run pretty much whatever you need with 2 gigs of RAM 2 CPUs and uh, 3 terabytes of transfer you know, uh, last week we talked about how to run a free NAS on DigitalOcean and next week we're going to show you how to run a PFSense uh, why would you run a PFSense in the cloud? hey look you now have a VPN endpoint Yep, you can do Why interesting things with that. How much for a VPN service when you could run a VPN yourself for less? Yep, and with those transfers, uh, that's pretty much a, a done deal for you if, in case you're on the road or connecting from a, you know, a remote place to your uh, company or from a hotel. That's a good use case for that. You could also uh, back up, of course, your little droplet in case something goes wrong. And create snapshots of those, as well as uh, share those droplet management with the team functionality they have, which is cool. Yeah. And using the floating IPs feature, you can get a separate public IP. You can move between VMs uh, so that you can keep your important service online, even if you need to uh, take nodes down or whatever. 
And for programmers, upgrade time. Yeah, eventually it's there, yeah, and then you want to be prepared. And for the programmers, they have an elegant API for uh, AB, API <laughs> uh, for Ruby, for Curl, for Go, or they have their own DOCTL, their uh, DigitalOcean control panel, where you can spin up machines like in the thousands yeah, in case you need those. DOCLI and, is super easy to use command line stuff. Uh, we use it all the time. Yeah, it's just great, and uh, you can start trying out DigitalOcean with uh, our coupon code, FreeBSD Now, which gives you a $10 credit, and I think we still have the other yep. coupon if code. If you go to uh, do.co slash bsdnow uh, and sign up there with that secret URL, you'll get $100 for 60 days uh, to try out DigitalOcean. At the fullest uh, capacity, yep. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you know you can have lots of fun playing around. You can get a a pretty big instance for that amount of money. Yeah, or multiple small ones to work together in some kind of mm-hmm. uh, MongoDB cluster or some other things you always wanted to try out but don't have the machines for. Yeah, that's another great use of it. It's just, uh, you know, I want to play that with that uh, Mineo thing we talked about the other week, mm. um, and you need. It's like I need. Uh, three nodes or four nodes each at three different data centers to do that. Uh, I I could possibly try to do that on my laptop, but I think I would run out of RAM. Uh, whereas if I use digital ocean droplets, spinning up a dozen one gig droplets isn't going to take all the RAM on my laptop. Yeah. Plus you can see how the uh, transfer speeds are between the different uh, data centers. And yeah. Locations. You know, when you have multiple gigabits per second of internet coming out of each of the droplets, that makes a big difference compared to my desktop. Uh, and the cheapest droplet is only 0.7 cents per hour. So if you're just going to spend your Sunday afternoon working on this, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time spending a quarter. Yep. And if you don't like it, then just switch it off and you don't get billed anymore. Then you and then you used. It's just the usage time. Yep. Okay, All right. next story. Yep. Uh, we have dumping your USB, which sounds um, like uh, throwing it away, but this is about the uh, USB traffic uh, on OpenBSD. So it starts uh, over at Grenadil.net. Uh, one of the many features of OpenBSD 6.3 is the possibility to dump USB traffic to userland via BPF. And um, this can be done with TCP dump by specifying a USB bus as interface. So you're not specifying your network card this time. You use the USB bus interface. So this is TCP dump dash capital X, uh, lowercase x, dash I for the interface and there you, you provide your USB zero in this case. And then it starts talking to you, not networky things, but USB interface traffic. Uh, as you might have noticed, um, the author decided to implement the existing USB PCAP feature format, uh, which is a captive format required because USB packets do not include all the necessary information to properly interpret them. Uh, that first thing looks like um, it would implement the PCAP's DLT underscore USB, but then uh, the author quickly realized that it was uh, not a standard. It is instead a FreeBSD-specific format, which has been uh, there since uh, they re- renamed it from DLT underscore USB FreeBSD. 
So um, looking at the existing formats, there are a couple of those, one for FreeBSD, one for Linux, one for Linux M-mapped, uh, Darwin for Win uh, not Windows, <laughs> Mac OS, and DLT USB PCAP. And um, the choice was the, uh, to pick the simplest one is the USB PCAP. So implementing an already existing format gives us out-of-box support for all the tools supporting it. That's why having common formats uh, lets us share our energy. In the case of USB PCAP, it is already supported by Wireshark, the popular uh, application, so you can already inspect your packet graphically. For that, you need to first capture some raw packets, which, which can uh, be done by TCP dump, and uh, then you write that out into a PCAP file, which Wirecap, Wireshark can then uh, read, and... The USB packets can be quite big, uh, but that's why uh, uh, here we are not using TCP dump. Uh, the default packet size, because in this case, uh, we want to make sure we can dump the complete U-Audio frames. So from your uh, USB audio, we just want to listen <laughs> on the wire in this case. And once the capture is complete, time to look at it. So this is a little uh, screenshot from Wireshark. And uh, it's important to say that uh, what is dumped to userland is what the USB stack sees. So packets sent over the wire might differ, especially when it comes to retrieving and timing. And this feature is not here to replace any USB analyzer. However, um, they hope that it will help people understand how things work and that the USB stack uh, is doing and what its internal uh, state might be. Uh, even when I found some interesting timing issues this way, uh, they finally implemented ISO isochronous blah, complicated word isochronous support yeah so it's interesting to see that TCP dump cannot just capture packets from the network um, but also USB traffic very nice and lastly we now have uh, configuring OpenBSD HTTPDD for your web server uh, oh yeah so as you see as soon as uh Right, so after you install OpenBSD, as soon as you're there, you can enable the web server just by editing the config file, adding some server sections, pointing, you know, say what IP and port to listen on and what root directory to use or how to redirect the traffic. Uh, you know, they make a document root and then do httpd-n to do a syntax check. Then they use rcctl to enable and start the daemon. And... Uh, if you go to the address, you now have a web server. Oh, that's quick and easy uh, to start that. Then after that's done, you can switch to having HTTPS. Of uh, course. So for this, you're going to need to um, issue some certificates with Let's Encrypt, so they show how to configure Acme Client and get that going. And then you add the uh, configuration block to your... Uh, web server once you have uh, the HTTP uh, or the <clears throat> TLS certificate you just add TLS with your certificate and key and uh, listen on IP TLS port 443 and now you have HTTPS on your web server yep that's uh, all detailed with the configuration files and uh, commands that you need to enter to get that running and uh, you can find some links to other section in the blog that uh, talks about uh, similar things. Yeah. Very cool. And we have modern Akonadi and K 
K-Mail on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. So this is for the KDE folks out there. Uh, here we have uh, basically uh, written down for quite literally a year or more, K-Mail and Akonadi on FreeBSD have been only marginally useful at best. KDE 4 era K-Mail was pretty darn good, but everything after that has had a number of FreeBSD users tearing out their hair. Uh, not me, but yeah. <laughs> so, sure, you can uh, go to that one, uh, which has its own special problems. Uh, Trojita, what's it called? Yeah. And it's generally, meh, or bailout entirely to webmail, but Kmail is a really great mail client when it works. Which on Linux desktop is nearly always, and on FreeBSD, nearly never. Okay, I looked at... Uh, with Dan and Volker last summer briefly and we got much uh, further than hmm there's a message about the world is going to end which hardly makes sense it means that a message has been truncated or corrupted while traversing a Unix domain socket now Alexander Martins praise be has wandered in with a likely solution KDE bug 381850 contains a suggestion which deserves to be publicized and tested so this is uh, SysGL settings? Yeah, so it's changing the buffer size on the Unix domain socket up to uh, from 8K to 64K. Ah, so a little uh, bit more. Which is the size that Linux has by default. Uh, oh, so, okay. Well, that works around the problem. It seems like uh, the problem is that KDE assumes everybody runs Linux. <laughs> yeah, the Linux systems. But, okay. As long as it's just a simple sysctl change. Uh, okay, uh, so that's what it says here, uh, bumping up to 64K. And no other changes, no recompiling, just bumping the sysctl and uh, kmail from area 51 hum along, uh, hums along all day without ending the world. And I think so, we're pretty close, if not already, to the point where you don't have to run it from area 51 anymore. Uh, it's available in the real ports tree. Yeah, uh, portals are busy. This is a big piece of software, so it takes a, a, a couple of uh, time and effort. Uh, but since changing this value may have other effects, and Akonadi shouldn't be dependent on a specific buffer size anyway, um, they're looking into the Akonadi code, encouraged by Dan, to either automatically size the socket buffers or to figure out where in the underlying code the assumption about buffer size lives. So for now, sysctl can make uh, Kmail users on previously happy, and later they hope to have things fully automatic. And if it doesn't pan out, well, package message is, <laughs> exists. Okay, so there's a PS down there. Uh, modern KDE personal information management applications, Arconadi, Kmail, which live in the desktop utils category of the official FreeBSD ports, were added to the official tree April 10th, so you can get your fix now from the official tree. Excellent. Thanks for the porting efforts, uh, KDE team on FreeBSD. So, time for Beastie Bits this week. We have package-provides support for Dragonfly BSD, which uh, was written by Rodrigo Osorio. Yes, uh, so Rodrigo brought over that work, so it's available on Dragonfly as well. Oh, excellent. So, it's and a short message here. Dragonfly... Four eight five zero and five two. Oh, great! So people can uh, uh, who are not on the very latest one can still use that um, tool, which is nice. So you can see which file came from this port or from which package came this file from. So yeah, well, usually it's I need this file. Which package has it? 
Mm. Uh, yeah, yes. the other way around. Okay, yeah, thank you, Rodrigo, for porting that over. Yeah, then we have a blog post here. Uh, Memories of writing a parser for man pages. Ooh, sounds uh, like... Uh, by uh, <laughs> Roberto Dip, uh, and uh, it's interesting to, to read his thoughts on writing something that can actually parse man pages. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and there we go with, uh, you know, the grammars and parsing and macros and... Oh yeah, that's 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 a great little read. Yeah, especially if you're interested in man pages, and uh, I think this one was actually uh, taking the man source and making uh, pretty web pages out of it. Okay, because they might uh, turn people into man page readers. Mm-hmm. Well, why not? And if you're more for the uh, video watching kind of. Uh, <laughs> Entertainment, let's say, you can find Brian Cantrell's interview over at Developer on Fire podcast, uh, which is interesting is, uh, to watch. I don't think there's video. Oh, it is? It's audio only? It's an audio podcast. Uh, okay. But still, uh, another hour of Brian Cantrell, if uh, that's your thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because if you uh, talk have watched about, any episode. Uh, Brian's opinions on formal computer science education, um, a little bit about what Brian does at Joyent and what Joyent does. Uh, Brian's thoughts on the economics of on-premise computing and uh, the collapse of its use in the face of the public cloud. Uh, you know, uh, Joyent's approach to openness and preventing vendor lock-in. Uh, how Brian got started in software. Uh, Brian's story of failure and you know, attitude or attitude towards defects and the impact of personal confidence and so on. Uh, the pitfalls of having a fixed mindset uh, among gifted individuals and the importance of persistence uh, and uh, so on, and also includes Brian's book recommendations, uh, which are interesting. Um, he recommended The Soul of a New Machine, uh, which I've read and I can also recommend if you're interested in you know how we got where we are in computers uh, in the early days. Uh, that's definitely interesting. But also uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb... <laughs> Uh, uh, Dream Reaper, the story of an old-fashioned inventor in the high-tech, high-stakes world of modern agriculture, uh, and so on. Hmm. How long does and, that go? Over an hour? Yeah. And the bug count also rises. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that famous uh, memo. But uh, I say Brian's three tips are read more, write more, and be persistent. Okay. We'll, we'll heat that. Um, yeah, next up is uh, I give you some dates and you do the math. So 25th of March 1978 to 25th of March 2018. Yes, 40 years of BSD mail. Um yeah, on this day in 1978, Kurt Schoens placed the following comment in def.h. The fork I maintain keeps it in nail.h. This is from Stefan Nurmeso. Uh, uh, yeah, this is mail, the mail program on Unix. Yeah, That's first when it started. Mail program. Mm-hmm. It was written at UC Berkeley, uh, and the initial commit uh, went in on March 25th, uh, 1978. Wow. Here we go. That's how long mail, uh, how old mail is, and where it all started. At least from the BSD side. Okay. 
impressive. Forty years is a long time. Is a long time, definitely. Uh, a little shorter time frame is our next item. Uh, my five years of FreeBSD gaming, a compendium of free games and engines running natively on FreeBSD for the gamers out there. Yeah, lots of uh, different things. Uh, Westnoth, uh, Zonotic, Warzone 2100, Warcraft 2. Played too much of that growing up. Uh, uh, Unreal Gold, uh, which I think I saw on Steam for free the other day. Um, Ooh, they got some car racing, uh, torques, uh, super tux cart, obviously. <laughs> oh, oh, light and lots more. Uh, that's no wine, no emulators, just XCOM, open source oh dear. native running games. <laughs> so if gaming on FreeBSD is interesting to you, you should check out their picks. They have quite a few different games there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let the games begin. <laughs> Um, but uh, if you're still with us, um, we have sequential resilver being upstreamed to FreeBSD from FreeNAS, where it was ported from ZFS on Linux. So this was um, yeah, this, so has this is well, this is, I think only part of the resilver uh, improvements, but the big part, basically, where uh, scans blocks uh, and tries to construct them into useful ranges, and then when that fills up, flushes the largest range. Uh, so it definitely improves the speed of resilvers by doing more um, contiguous I.O. in a straight line and less um, having the hard drive jump all over the place. This reminds me of the old scan disk from DOS days. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, rearranging. <laughs> but yeah, Scrub is different because uh, ZFS has a different data structure, of course. But it's good to see um, from the preliminary uh numbers they provided in the review that it's a significant um, reduction in the scrub time. Yep. Okay, so um, last but not least is the University of Aberdeen's Internet Transport Research Group is hiring. So if you're interested in doing research, then you might check out the two uh, job postings that we have here. And the, the, these are research uh, fellows and one research assistant and you can find the details in the links uh, in the show notes and yeah, why not uh, uh, apply I think for that. The closing date for that is where did I go here? Uh, soon. It's on the top of this thing. June 7th. Uh, so if you'd like to work on internet research uh, you really should. Hmm. Yep, University of Aberdeen, Scotland. Yes, uh, A, Scotland is great, and uh, B, you know, you get to work on the internet. Uh, and uh, the research assistant uh, position is, uh, you know, designed for people that are just starting out, really. Um, you know, available topics include a large-scale active measurement of mobile platforms, like 3G and 4G and so on. Uh they say all applicants must have a background in TCP IP network stack, uh, network measurements, uh, and be proficient in programming in C or Python. Uh, you're expected to have uh, knowledge of Linux and BSD operating systems and network stack principles, and understanding of software development is desired uh, for some activities. Mm-hmm. Okay. If that's your thing, then why not do the next uh, great uh, internet uh 
Extension. <laughs> uh, before we go into our feedback and questions section, we should mention a sponsor for that part, which is Tarsnap, of course, the online backups for the truly paranoid. When was your last backup? If you can't remember, then it's not a good sign. Yeah. You should yeah. regularly make backups. You don't think about your backup until you need it. And when you need it, it's already too late. Yeah, then you say, oh, I should have done a backup earlier and With regularly. Tarsnap, it, it couldn't literally be easier. It's, it's one line of command. And it's like, take these files and put them over on the cloud encrypted with this key. Um, and then you just do incrementals to that. And then at any time, you can be like, I want those files back. And as long as you still have the key, you're all good. And if you don't have the key, you get nothing. And that is how it's supposed to be. So that anybody else that doesn't have the key can't get your files. Exactly. And it's just as easy uh, to use like TAR. Uh, if you know how to use TAR, then TARSNAP is just an extension of that, basically. And you can find clients for Linuxes of this world, the BSDs, macOS, and the Windows subsystem for Linux. And you can also look at the source code if you are still a little yes. bit suspicious. Mm -hmm. Check it out. You don't have to look at the source code, but would you trust any other backup tool that didn't give you the source code? Maybe they're doing a little backup for themselves, move it somewhere else where it's been scrutinized for something. But in Tarsnap, it's locally encrypted before it goes into yeah. the cloud. So you it only are takes the key $5 holder. to get started. So just go try it. You'll be as hooked as we are. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, time for feedback and questions. That's the part where you interact with us, basically, and we answer your questions. Uh, the first one this week is Dave about mounting non-file system things inside jails. Uh, that goes, Hi, folks. I'd like to remove the need for an RFC 1918 jail IP for my jail systems by using Unix domain sockets to connect the jailed web server in a jail to the host system's proxy servers, HA proxy or NGINX, outside the jail. What I'm not clear on is that for the proxy server to run, it needs the Unix domain socket already created. And I can't rely on the jail being available at boot time yet, and I'd like to be able to restart the jail without needing to restart the proxy servers each time as the socket would be disconnected. What options have I got here? Well, like, normally the socket doesn't have to exist. Like, NGINX won't try to connect to the socket until somebody connects to NGINX and wants to go to that socket. So that should yeah. still work. I don't know if HA proxy is different in that it tries to keep the socket open all the time or something. But definitely with NGINX, you don't need to do anything. Uh, yeah. Just in the NGINX config on the host, you just say your backend is here and give it the full path to the jail. Like, you know, user jails, jail name slash you know, var run nginx.sock or wherever you put your nginx socket uh, or whatever socket is inside the jail. Um, and nginx won't really be poking that until you make a connection uh, and try to have nginx, you know, proxy something to that. Hmm. At first, when I read the, um, the description, I was like, we were trying to mount something uh, from outside the jail into the jail, but this is now more... But yeah, like uh, if you needed to do that, uh, NullFS would have let you take a directory um, and mount on it the host into... and expose it into the jail uh, so that the socket could be somewhere where... Uh, mm -hmm. So socket created on the host 
uh, although you didn't have to do that that way either. Um, you know, if you were trying to do this the other way around or something, you would just have the program create its socket in um, the in the jail's directory somewhere, and then just in the jail access it by that relative path. Yep. So that should do as it. far as I know, um, it should be fine the way it is. Like you should just be able to point to the socket um, in the jail. Um, yep. Also, even during a restart, usually the socket file will still be there. It just won't be connected to anything yet. Mm, yeah, it's just waiting for the first connect. Yeah, uh, so maybe you'll need to write back with an error message about why it's not working because maybe there's something else going on. Uh, yeah, general, there may be something if, missing that we... If the uh, proxy server get, on the host uh, is Nginx, you definitely can point to a socket that doesn't exist yet because it doesn't connect to the socket until you make the first connection to the proxy. Yeah, because otherwise it would just waste resources. Like, yeah. I think even without jails involved at all, you know, my Nginx uh, uses a socket to talk to the FastCGI, uh, and FastCGI doesn't start until after Nginx is started. And that works fine. Yep. Okay, maybe that's uh, that's solved maybe already. Maybe there's more going on there, or maybe they just assumed uh, it was going to be more difficult than it is. Mm. Possibly. Okay, next up is uh, Morgan with a short message uh, telling us about what we covered a couple of episodes ago, the ZFS on Linux data loss bug. And uh, there's the link to the GitHub issue we covered. But when we covered it back uh, in those uh days, let's say, uh, they weren't uh, close to a solution yet, but now apparently this one is closed. So uh, do you know anything more about this? Uh, I know that they were working on this stuff. Uh, there was some discussion about it when I was at the ZFS user conference. Mm -hmm. uh, so it seems like uh, Brian Belandov closed that one. So it seems like they are close to a solution or have found one. I'm just trying so, to scroll through here, and we didn't. Yeah, so uh, these were the files disappearing. There's uh, an upscreen. Oh yeah, there's the regression. Yeah, they they closed the one. Um, the yeah, they, the downgrade to 0 0.76 of ZFS on Linux was uh, needed, and then they could provide an upscreen upstream version uh, that fixed that, so people can. Uh, upgrade then. Uh, this is Linux only. Um, ZFS people on other operating systems uh, don't need to worry, yet. at least not that uh, we know. Okay, thanks for letting us uh, know about this again, so we could revisit that. Um, and next is uh, Rene. Uh, how to keep your ISP's nose out of your browser history with encrypted DNS? This could also be a talk, by the way. Um, so this message goes, Hi, Alan and Benedict. Uh, perhaps you already covered this uh, as I'm a bit behind. The below article is about using Cloudforce 1.1.1.1 or other providers for encrypted DNS, uh, like DNS Crypt or DNS over SSL HTTPS. Uh, this is over at arstechnica.com. Mm -hmm. Giving you an introduction. I think we have a tutorial on our site about using DNS Crypt even. Yeah, could be. Um, this is more like uh, how-to style or just a description uh, of how to... We have one from 2014, encrypting DNS lookups, uh, and it's a tutorial of how to set up DNS script. 
So yeah, uh, so that no one can. If you want to do that, and you or, can set the upstream in your DNS script to be something like OmniDNS or or the Google DNS or whatever. Uh, I personally would avoid the Cloudflare one, but that's just me. Mm. Oh, that's a personal preference. But in general, there are ways to let uh, your well, ISPs. Also, the problem those. with the Cloudflare one in that because they don't do eDNS client subnet for privacy reasons, uh, you'll get worse performance from a lot of things that use CDNs because you'll be mislocated. Hmm. Okay. All right, and last but not least is Rodriguez with a feedback question for Windows Yesterday. That's the other show. Um, no, it's a question relating to Windows, so let's try us to answer that. Just this once. Okay, so, hello, Alan and Benedict. I'm currently someone who is learning information systems. I have a home lab set up and in the running for a few internship. Okay, cool. Uh, in relating to BSD, specifically FreeBSD, I have some questions up. Uh, how well there is interlooping and integration with a Windows environment. In this case, I'm asking specifically about, first, Active Directory, registering and using a FreeBSD machine to an Active Directory. Uh, it's used Samba to do it. and it uh, So you install the Samba package, and uh, there's tutorials on how to join the domain and uh, have be able to log into it with the Windows Active Directory usernames and so on. Yep. We have something at the university in our computer science department. The uh, whole university is using Active Directory, but we have something built with Open LDAP, so um, we don't have to have run our own Active Directory servers and things like that. And it's basically just LDAP logins on on FreeBSD. Uh, second is SMB and file sharing, specifically with ZFS, of course, uh, because I love how wonderful that file system is. You're not alone. Yes. So again, uh, Samba, which you are be running uh, to join Active Directory provides the SMB file sharing features, uh, including if you name your, if you uh, enable a feature in Samba and name your snapshots just right, the snapshots will show up in the Windows, on the Windows machines uh, as volume shadow copies so that users will be able to access snapshots and get old versions of their files back. Mm. Yeah, don't try to mess with the um, share SMB option in ZFS. That's not actually implemented in FreeBSD. You have to use right. the Samba functionality. Um, third, Office 2016. There isn't much uh, that a non-Windows machine can do here. I know that, but there are things such as Exchange and SharePoint that uh, I would that would be nice to um, be working with FreeBSD. Uh, well, there's not really a way to do that. Uh, you can run a different mail server on FreeBSD, but if you want Exchange or SharePoint, uh, you pretty much have to run that on Windows. You could run it on Windows in a beehive on FreeBSD if you really wanted, I guess. Mm. Yeah, but that's just clear missing support and all that. Um, number four is management of Windows machines. I'm not looking at full SCCM, but something to monitor. Well, there are all kinds of monitoring packages on FreeBSD for yeah, if you want any to use, kinds of you know, a singular or Nagios or Cacti yep. or whatever, uh, you can definitely monitor your Windows network. That's, yeah, totally uh, and, and well-supported. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. For your first and second question, Samba is the uh, the open source package that will turn any uh, FreeBSD machine into uh, you know, being able to be compatible with your Windows network. Um, for desktop Office stuff, um, obviously you can use LibreOffice or whatever, or if you happen to be using the Office 365 cloud thing, then 
suddenly you replace all your office software with your web browser and -hmm. it doesn't matter what operating system you're on. Yep. But I like the approach that you want to um, integrate FreeBSD with the Windows and don't uh, want to miss out on the features that ZFS provides. Yeah. And If you so, just want it as a file server, uh, FreeNAS has all the the goop uh, simpled down uh, so that you can just use the web interface, join it to your domain, uh, and make it so that you can use Windows permissions on all of the files on your file server. Yep, they've done all the FreeNAS heavy lifting for is, you. Uh, meant to integrate into Windows very nicely. It's how we insidiously get our start. Get a little bit of FreeBSD <laughs> in the network, and then it's more and more and more and more. Yeah, and suddenly it's all BSD. Okay, um, yeah, that's the end of this show. Uh, again, if you have any questions to us, uh, comments, found a cool blog post or article about BSD that we should cover, uh, then send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and we'll cover it in a future episode. Thanks for watching. Thanks. See you next week. <laughs>